I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. It's great to see you. Sam, JJ, Tim, great to see you guys. Thanks. Great to it's see you too, Michael. Time. Yeah, it's been forever. <laughs> <laughs> we are Theology Unplugged, coming to you from the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. Credo House is the headquarters of Reclaiming the Mind Ministries slash Credo House Ministries. One of these days we'll finalize that change. But you know what? We're very sensitive to our audience, aren't we, Tim? Yeah. We yeah. know that people don't like change. That's right. And so we're going to take it so long, and it's going to be so drawn out, this change, that by the time it actually happens, there'll be absolutely no controversy, because wisdom abounds at the Credo House. <laughs> okay. Right? It does when Sam and JJ are here with us. Well, they didn't come up with that idea. Yeah. Well, I did. Okay. Well, good job. Thank you. Good job. Your humility <laughs> is just off the charts as well. What's, Our, a, what's the rationale behind behind the name Credo House? You know, uh, reclaiming the mind, it was, um, you know, you, you got mind and you got reclaiming. Uh, mind having a lot to do and with And you have the, the in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go full circle, brother. <laughs> Why would you ask that question? That was a perfect, Let's get to the point no, of the that, issue That here. was a perfect setup. It's going to become theology no, no, untethered. No, no. Mind, mind was a, it's a little bit polemical. Uh, considering kind of the spirit of the emerging church and all that, and we don't want to place our side self on one side or the other. Like you know, we're the ones who are reclaiming the mind. Everybody else is out there. You've lost your mind. Let us help the you spirit or it. the you know the society or whatever. We're we just didn't want to make those types of statements. And plus, Credo House is uh, more what we're about. Belief. It's not so much an apologetics ministry, though we do a lot of apologetics. We're a theology ministry and trying to help people deepen their belief. And so, Credo. Or a credo uh, means I believe. So thanks for the setup. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Appreciate That's a golden opportunity. I'll be I'll be your Gracie Burns anytime you want. Well, we are in the middle of a series uh, that's hopefully uh, reclaiming the mind and credo, um, deepening your faith and helping you understand it. This is a series on the uh, issue of the charismatic gifts, and one side is we're arguing for that we are not charismatic, and the other side is arguing that they are charismatic. Now, Sam, I want you once again, for our audience's sake, and let me ask you this question just to clarify once again, because I, I was reading somebody the other day, and they said they, don't, they think that whenever I have done this, I have set it up in such a way to skew it because I've used the word charismatic, and charismatic is not the term that should be used with regards to this and that it's too controversial and so you know whereas uh, you guys might not want to say you're charismatic um i it has been set up in such a way now i didn't mean to do that if it is but i know that there's some hesitancy in taking up the banner of least that name charismatic is that right Yes, and I think the reason is because, as we have discussed before, the word is more than theological. It's also cultural mm-hmm. and sociological. And when people hear the term, <clears throat> they uh, <clears throat> excuse me. They typically uh, did that mess up the recording. My clearing my throat. Oh, it's down? okay. All right. Let's uh, everybody know they that you're typically real. think of certain individuals um, who have become famous or infamous on television and uh, certain extremes. And that being charismatic entails not simply what you believe about spiritual gifts, but even um, a style of worship, a, a style of dress, 
Um, Style of wearing makeup. Yeah, just the way you behave, a kind of a flamboyance Mm -hmm. that is offensive to many people. So uh, it has connotations that cause some people to question whether or not it's really the the most helpful term or not. And I understand that. I I think we probably just landed on it because we really didn't have any other good terms. Uh, Most people, if they saw our series, Why I Am Not a Continuationist, um, they wouldn't have connected with that as quickly mm-hmm. uh, as they do with the word charismatic. Mm-hmm. So it has, a, it has its upside because it is derived from the biblical term uh, for grace and for grace gifts, the charismata, uh, the transliteration of that word in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, so it does have validity in that sense, but it does carry some pretty heavy cultural baggage. That's kind of like sometimes when we're talking about being an evangelical, and depending upon what context you're talking about it, it could be good or bad, but don't really sometimes have anywhere else to go, and it's the best thing for right now. Well, so. it's like the word fundamentalist. Yeah. All of us in this room believe in the fundamentals of the faith, mm-hmm. but there is a cultural connotation to being a fundamentalist uh, whether christian or islamic that we not, don't necessarily want to embrace mm. and it seems like the cop-out would just put neo in front of it right yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing to always do well, so I, I so sam would you want to be a right? would you want to be a neo charismatic perhaps uh i'm not going to answer that <laughs> <laughs> okay well we, we're continuing guys our discussion on prophecy last last week we uh began this discussion and i think this is a important part of the Discussion again. Yeah. We're trying to keep this as a discussion and not a debate. Even though both sides, you know, uh, I, I'd say that you guys are probably more set than both Tim and I are in the position that you're at. Although I don't, you know, I don't know how to judge myself, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But we're talking about the gift of prophecy. We're zeroing in on some of the specific gifts. We're going to talk about prophecy. We're going to talk about healings. And we're going to talk about tongues. I think those would be the three. But as we ended last week talking about prophecy, you guys had brought up this idea that in the New Testament, prophecy is to be thought of as different than in the Old Testament. I said at the end of last broadcast that in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets spoke on behalf of God and therefore was God's mouthpiece. God was very jealous of his word. And my argument was, why is he not still jealous of his word if uh, it's changed in the New Testament? Is uh, something changed to where he's like, well, I, you know, it's grace now, therefore I don't care quite so much if I'm misrepresented. And I know that's kind of a setup for you guys to come in here and say, this is the reason why we believe that it is not the same in the New Testament prophecy as it is in the Old Testament. Now, my argument would be this, that the burden is on you guys because I just don't see it. I don't know of anybody that I've ever seen that naturally came across that there is a distinction between Old Testament prophets or prophecy and New Testament, therefore, distinction in the criteria. Now, I wouldn't say, as in the Old Testament, that if you got something wrong, you know, you come in and said, thus saith the Lord, and you got something wrong, that uh, the church needs to take up the axe. Uh, but what I would say is that from my perspective, it's still extremely serious. That doesn't speak to the continuation or non-continuation. I, I think that that's important because if it's still serious, that doesn't mean it ceased, right? So, so if it's still the same type of prophecy in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, that doesn't mean anything with regards to its cessation or continuation. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, it, but I would immediately say. Um, I think God is just as protective of his word in the New Covenant age as he was in the Old Covenant. 
And I think uh, he's protective of it in two ways. First of all, he's preserved his word for us in the canon of Scripture. Uh, that's how protective he is, that he, by the Spirit, providentially preserved those writings that he wanted to be binding on the conscience and the behavior and the beliefs of his people throughout the, the New Covenant age until Christ returns. He's also protective of his word in that he has given us commandments to judge or to weigh or to evaluate any alleged prophetic utterance on two occasions. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others judge what is said. So he's not saying, oh, just let any word come into your midst, buy it hook, line, and sinker, just be gullible, naive, and when anybody says, well, I think God's given me a word for you, you know, uh, genuflect to it. No, he says, judge it, evaluate it. Same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. He says, do not quench the spirit, but test, and, and do not despise prophetic utterances, but rather test them. And then he says very explicitly that when you, when you have tested them, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So coming back, Michael, I don't know if the people will remember this from last week. You said somebody comes in and says, Michael, I think I have a word uh, from the Lord for you. And you said you didn't know how to respond to that or how to know whether or not it was true. Well, the problem you're facing is the same problem the Thessalonians and the Corinthians faced in the first century. You should respond to that person the same way Paul told the Thessalonians to respond to a purported prophetic utterance. You test it. And if by that testing process, that evaluation, you come to believe that um, a, a, a message, a word, a uh, from God has come to you, then you do exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians to do. You hold fast to it. That which you have by the testing process uh, discerned not to be of God, you reject it, as Paul told the Thessalonians to. So my point is this. The problem that you articulated is not a 21st century problem. It existed in the first century when the apostles were still present, and therefore the way we are to respond to purported prophetic utterances today is precisely the same way they responded to purported prophetic utterances then. So if it is a problem for us now, we have to acknowledge it was equally a problem for them then. So, in fact, I would suggest, I would argue, that we are actually in a much better place. You are in a much better place to respond and to evaluate that word that supposedly just came to you than the Thessalonians were in the first century because you have the completed canon. You have the, the final embodiment of God's word for uh, his people throughout the centuries by which to judge any alleged prophetic utterance. So I think we actually stand in a much better position um, than did those in, in the first century. Now, now, what what would that look like? Like, tell us what that looks like at Bridgeway when someone comes up, or you know, what does that look like on a daily basis when someone comes up and says, "I have a prophecy for the church, for the people of God." How do you interact with that? Well, we have a, a couple of ways in which we do it. it. We have what we call the prophetic council, which is a, a group of about six or seven individuals who are very mature, who are very seasoned and experienced in this who meet every week on Sunday morning. Um, if people feel like God has uh, impressed upon them something or given them a prophetic word, uh, they can communicate with the prophetic council. They evaluate it. They judge it. They test it. Then they bring it to the elders and the pastors. 
to determine whether or not it indeed is from the Lord. And if it is, then we decide whether it's uh, for that individual personally or for the church corporately. We make decisions about how that is to be communicated. If it happens on a Sunday morning during a corporate service, we actually have written guidelines that we have published. It's available on our website um, by which we ask people or we ask people to abide by these so that we can determine uh, as, as best we can, and we're fallible, so we're not always perfect in this, whether or not we think it is indeed a word from God. If so, who should deliver it? When should they speak it? How should it be done? Should it be done immediately? Should we wait a week? Uh, we have all sorts of guidelines by which we process this. So uh, we do not have an open microphone. We do not let anybody at any point uh, speak forth these prophetic words. And largely because you're talking about 800 people gathered in an auditorium who are operating uh, in a very narrow range of time in which they can get everything in that they feel like they're supposed to. So uh, we have guidelines. We have restrictions uh, to facilitate uh, the exercise of the prophetic in a corporate setting. Now, let's say over the last six months, how can you say how often this has happened? Maybe once a month, JJ, twice a month at most. Okay. Um, where someone comes or where like it makes it kind of through the process? Or both. maybe maybe on average once or twice a month. Okay. So it's okay. not it's not a it's not an every week phenomenon. Certainly not every day. Um, maybe it's more frequent than that, but certainly uh, in our small groups, this sort of thing uh, would be a little bit more common. Um, but it's not it's not as frequent as maybe some people envision it to be. Yeah. Um, I think oftentimes people not uh, having been exposed to that kind of uh, body life would probably be underwhelmed by what they would see, <laughs> which I think you're already getting a sense that it is rather underwhelming. It's not very spectacular or entertaining. Um, and oftentimes the words that are shared are, are, are going to sound to a cessationist like someone wants to read a scripture that might encourage the body. You know, So you know, uh, from my time in the vineyard, I've seen the people that get up and, and, and begin to declaim, you know, thus saith the Lord, a darkness shall spread over land. You know, oftentimes it's, you know, I feel like the Lord is saying that, that someone has this discouragement in their life and that we, we would encourage you to come up for prayer because the Lord wants to, to do some healing in that area. So all that to say, I, I think people would be pleasantly surprised and, and it leaves a lot of freedom for weighing. And we seek to empower our people to way. And, and uh, a lot of that comes through training of teaching people not to use the phrase, thus saith the Lord, to not create such a buildup in the way in which they share something that the Lord might have laid on their heart that it leaves that person no out to say, well, thank you, but I need to pray about that. And so, you know, I'll even hear guys use humor in a way that I think is really biblical to say, hey, it might be bad pizza, man, but I feel like the Lord laid this on my heart, you know, so you pray about it and, and see if the, this is something the Lord might have for you. So we try to extend a lot of graciousness to one another to remind each other of our fallibility and yet our desire to be sensitive and listen. Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm finding this this part of it really interesting and, and fascinating, and I, I think that we need to continue that on at some point because I want to know exactly what a test looks like. But before I get there, before we get there, I, I still want to know where this, this idea that there's differences between Old Testament and New Testament type of prophecy exists. Um, I I, I don't know if it's foundational. I mean, you guys have to tell me if it's foundational to the way you practice and if suddenly, it, it, no, it, it's not really different, if that would change anything. But at the same time, that is something that you guys have put forward and said that in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy or the having a, a prophetic gift at one time or the office of prophet, I, I want some clarification there. 
I, yeah, I guess sure I want to shift the burden of proof back on you a little bit, only yeah. because I don't think anyone reading 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 would begin to panic and hear Paul saying that he's now empowering an entire church that has a lot of immaturity to all begin frantically inscripturating truth. So I think we already, you know, using a hermeneutic of love as we read the text, already have a strong sense that Paul's talking about something slightly different than what Jeremiah and Isaiah were being called by God to do. I think I think we already know that. And when, when Peter stands up, as Sam said in our last broadcast, and says, let me explain to you guys what's happening right now. This is what Joel, you know, was prophesied in Joel 2.28, that all will prophesy. And, and this democratizing, as Sam called it, I don't think anybody reads that passage and then panics and says, oh, my word, why would the Lord do that? Why would he empower a million Jeremiahs to all run around saying, thus say the Lord, and declaiming over each other's heads. I think we know intuitively that's probably not what he's talking about. Um, yeah, the question is huge. Uh, and honestly, Michael, I think that this, at least in my interaction with people of varying degrees of conviction on cessationism, this is the most oft-heard question or objection to the view that we embrace, is that they... Uh, they, they insist that the New Testament gift of prophecy necessarily operates at the same level of authority as did the Old Testament expression uh, of the prophetic. Um, there are there are numerous reasons why we've already touched on them briefly, but I'll just quickly survey uh, um, the reasons in answer to your question. Um, first of all, as I already said, the democratization of the prophetic, the the fact that it is now a universal outpouring of the Spirit so that the potential exists for all in the body of Christ to prophesy. It doesn't mean they necessarily will, but the potential exists for all of them to, as Paul says on numerous occasions in 1 Corinthians 14. The fact that there must have been countless thousands of prophetic utterances circulating throughout um, the Holy Land during the first century and through Asia Minor and even into Rome because we know there were prophets in Rome, Thessalonica, uh, Corinth, Jerusalem, Antioch, and yet there is an utter lack of concern on the part of the apostles to preserve these for us. So if these were all scripture quality, uh, divinely binding authoritative words comparable to that in the Old Testament, it does raise the question, what happened to them? Where are they? Why this indifference on the part of the apostolic community to secure them for us? Now, I'm not saying that proves that they are operating at a lower level of authority, but it does raise the question that would need to be addressed. Then you have the way in which we are told to respond to prophetic words, which we just talked on a moment ago. The fact that we are to judge them, evaluate them. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Then also you have, for example, um, Paul's instruction in chapter 14 where he says, if a re- he's talking about the corporate meeting uh, of the people of God. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first one be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. I believe that Paul is showing a remarkable lack of concern for the fact that uh, a prophet who suddenly stops may not get to finish and deliver his word. Uh, why would he do that if he believed that every prophetic utterance forthcoming was, in fact, scripture quality, divinely authoritative? And then you go on in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, down in verse 36. He rebukes the Corinthians. He says, was it from you that the word of God came? 
In other words, here are Corinthians wanting to revise guidelines for how public worship is to occur based on what they believed was a word they had received from God, and yet Paul is saying, no, uh, that's not the case. Yes, you prophesy. Yes, there are prophets among you, but that doesn't mean that the, the binding authoritative word of God is coming forth from you. There may be something from God there, but it needs to be judged and evaluated. And then he goes on in the very next verse, and he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing are a command of the Lord. In other words, he's subordinating the congregational prophets in Corinth to his apostolic, canonical um, expression of the gift of prophecy. Um, Then you have, for example, um, Acts 21, which we can maybe want to go into in another broadcast, where you have these people at Tyre, the disciples at Tyre, who through the Spirit, it says, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Agabus gives this prophetic word, likewise. Luke chimes in, all telling Paul not to go. Paul disobeyed them. If Paul believed that all prophetic words were scripture quality, divinely infallible, would he have vehemently and explicitly disobeyed that? And he said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem because the Spirit has told me that I am to go there and that I will encounter persecution. I also believe in Acts 21 that Agabus, although he received a revelation from God, misinterpreted and misapplied it and in fact got two things wrong. In general, he was correct, but I think he actually made two mistakes in the application and the interpretation of that word. Um, And then finally, just real quickly, we need to talk talk at some point about the way in which the New Testament uses the word reveal or revelation. Because we tend to assume that anything God, quote-unquote, reveals is, again, scripture quality authority. And yet, Philippians 3.15, Paul says, If any of you disagree with me on this matter, God will reveal this to you. Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given to all the Ephesian believers to help them understand their hope in Christ. Um, so I think we make the mistake of taking the word revelation, capital R, bold face, out of 21st century Protestant systematic theology and imposing that back on the New Testament when in fact the New Testament uses the word in a number of different ways that do not necessarily imply canonical authority. So that's a whirlwind answer to your question that made JJ looks like he was going to add something to that. No, I just, I, I think what, what Sam teased out there in first. You don't say 14. no and then just go ahead with it. No, I don't, but I just think this. With the opportunity, I will now That's speak. Right. Now that you mention it. Uh, but what Sam was teasing out there in first Corinthians 14 is, is absolutely key where Paul is very clear. What's the purpose of prophecy? It's for encouragement and upbuilding, mutual edification of the body. I want you guys to exercise it in this way. And then let's not confuse our roles here. I'm an apostle. I'm speaking authoritatively. That's incredibly key for putting this in context. And he does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians where, as Sam already mentioned earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5 gives, again, a clear indication that these are not to be just sort of received like automatic writing, like Joseph Smith has been handed tablets from heaven. You test everything. You hold fast what is good. 
But one of the most famous apologetic passages for the early high view of this unfolding canon of New Testament scripture that was was being written and created in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, uh, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And so again, Paul's making a very clear distinction between what he and the other apostles were creating by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what it looks like when the gifts are operative in the body. Okay, um, Abigail Steele, that, that's fascinating to me about, uh, not so much about him getting wrong something, because I've never really bought into that one, but the deal about uh, about him not obeying Paul, that, that is fascinating. I'm going to have to think about that for a while. Now, a couple of things real quick that I have to, uh, to ask you guys, or I, I don't know if this is a response or what. I understand the argument that cessationists make with regards to with regard to the canon still being open. Okay? That's that's a common one, right? Is that right? Who believes that the canon is still well, open? Well, if, if you have prophecy going on, it's authoritative, therefore the canon is still open. I think that's one Gaffin makes, right? Yeah, they, they would say that it undermines our confidence that the canon is closed, final, and altogether sufficient. Now, as far as saying that that makes it different, and I don't, I don't describe to that argument simply because... Um, I mean, that, that that gives a whole different theology of the canon. I mean, the canon is not simply an agglomeration of everything God has ever said. You know, I mean, it's, it's redemptive history, and if it applies to redemptive history, I mean, you've got all kinds of prophets in the Old Testament that, that obviously had other prophecies that they gave, but we don't have their recording. I mean, the first time Nathan jumps on the scene, he's already an established prophet, and he's saying to David, you know, you are the man who has done this and bringing something very personal to him. I think um, it says of, of, uh, of Samuel uh, that he had been established by Israel by the time Saul goes out seeking him, so he was already established. And so I, I think that that I wanted to ever argue that if it is thus saith the Lord, it needs to be in the canon. I would, I would never think that. I would think the Lord is doing lots of things, saying lots of things that... Uh, don't get established. The Bible is not an agglomeration of everything that God has ever said, authoritatively. Right? Correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and also, Sam, I wouldn't, I, I, whenever he says uh, subordinating Paul's words or their words to Paul or let them recognize that what is being said is being said of the Lord. Is that what you were saying earlier, that Paul's words are subordinated to... No, or their words are subordinated to Paul's. Yeah, I yeah. think Paul is saying there's legitimate prophetic activity in Corinth, and some of you are legitimate prophets, but you need to recognize that no word that you believe you receive from God is intrinsically, uh, in and of itself, authoritative in such a way that it can counteract the apostolic-inspired writing that I am giving you in this document that, in fact, is being written and, tra- and sent to the church. But isn't that just Deuteronomy chapter 13? I mean, if a prophet comes to you and speaks something and it doesn't agree with what has gone before it, you know, I mean, there's a submission of later prophecy to earlier prophecy mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the Old Testament, whenever a new prophet comes in, he has to submit himself to the to what has been gone before it. And it's kind of like you got to submit to God's word before. If you're speaking something that is in contradiction with God's word before, then you are outside of submission to it, so your prophecy but, but, is invalidated. But the difference here is this. In that Old Testament context, if you claimed to be pro- a prophet and had a prophetic word and it failed that test, 
You were stoned to death. You were a false prophet. That's not what you see in the New Testament. You don't see uh, people in Corinth who um, may have uh, had their prophetic utterances judged and found wanting, or in Thessalonica where they, there were some that was bad, some that was good, that somehow they're excommunicated or called false prophets. Um, Paul seems to be suggesting, I believe, that the New Testament prophetic gift functions at a different level of authority because it's not merely the inspired and infallible revelatory word of God. It's then processed through the human instrument in such a way that there can be a mixture requiring the weighing, the sifting, the assessing of that word to determine as best one can what is indeed from God and what is not. And by the way, let me just let me just throw this point in. I my sense is that and and, and if I'm uh, misinterpreting you guys and your your perspective on this, please correct me. But my sense is that when I talk with cessationists of, of whatever wherever they are on the spectrum about this issue, what oftentimes is energizing them more than anything else is their fear of subjectivity. It feels too loose. It feels, um, it's like I have to be absolutely definitive uh, in every regard. And it's just a, it's kind of an overall uh, sense that if, if I can't be 100% guaranteed, then I, I'm not going to even be open to the possibility that, that God is at work. And the fact of the matter is there's a, there's a good measure of subjectivity involved uh, even in the interpretation of the written canonical revelation of God. Well, I, I do think you're, you're reading me correctly because I do get that sense. I get do. a little antsy when, it, when somebody might mm-hmm. supposedly deliver you a prophetic word. And I understand that. Well, it does. And, and the sense that I'm still taking it is like we talked about last time. You know, this is God. This is his reputation. I'm very scared of it myself. I'm scared to get up and teach half the time, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm just scared I'm going to get up there and teach something wrong from the Scripture. And so, I mean, it, it's a fearful thing for me. And I'm not saying it's not for you guys. I understand that. I mean, that's why you guys are here, and I don't have somebody else because we know you and we respect you, and, and you, you guys are, are, are right in line with us with regards to the importance of God's Word. But the distinction, and I, I know you're going to understand this distinction because you've been there and you've thought through this, but the distinction with me is this, is that whenever you come up to someone and you say something that you may think this is God's Word, just like the one we talked about uh, last session, I don't think we got any details and I don't want to get any details about who or what, but there, there are some issues with regards to somebody's very personal life, you know, during a counseling session. Now, let's say that I was counseling someone and I came up and I said, you know, I'm getting this idea and this may not be from the Lord, but it may be from the Lord that that you cheated on your wife. Now, the cat's out of the bag. Whether he did it or not, that's going to create some serious issues. Well, first of all, I would never say that. Okay. I would never never do that in a counseling session. I would find a way of, if I felt like God had impressed upon me or, or, or revealed to me uh, that kind of behavior in this individual's relationship with his or her spouse, I would um, begin asking other questions and probing in a different direction that I hope would eventually bring that to the surface. Or I would wait until I could speak to that individual privately, 
absent their spouse and say, look, I want to ask you something about the fidelity to your marital vows. Let's, let's, let's talk turkey here, man-to-man or man-to-woman, whatever it is, uh, and, and get this out in the open. So I, first of all, I would never do that. Well, and this is the issue that came up in the blogosphere the last couple of weeks is someone saying that right in front of their husband saying, you know, I've seen that you cheated on, and here's the details. This is what it looked like in a graphic manner. See, you know, That's a very good point, Tim, but let's differentiate between two very important things. There is a world of difference between what God may have revealed to somebody in a counseling session, an yeah. image, an impression about maybe illicit sexual behavior, and a difference between that and how you then choose to communicate that yes. or how you use it to help those people or whether or not you should then stand on a platform and tell the world through YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so. We, I don't doubt for a moment that God can and often does reveal that kind of information. Yeah, and I don't either. I, I, there is a, a big question in terms of practical wisdom and pastoral uh, sensitivity as to how it is then communicated. Yeah. But I would say, Michael, your concern to protect God's Word, and um, I, I wish every charismatic could hear you. When you say that, and I would, I want to reaffirm that and reiterate that as well. I want to say to the people in my church, don't be casual and careless and flippant about what you think God may have said. You need to tremble. You need to shake. You need to if, to take this to the Lord in prayer. You need to to, to search the scriptures. Uh, you need to employ every possible means for testing and judging whether or not this is of God. And and I think you're right. I think that's why. There's so much abuse and and, um, and and offense in the charismatic movement broadly is because people haven't. They have not heeded your concern. They have not been um, um, protective of God's reputation to just get up and say, thus saith the Lord, when God would never have dared think of saying any such thing is a serious, serious matter. And I... I wish charismatics would take your warning and your concern to heart. We would be a lot better off if they did. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- think that was from the Lord when I said, oh, "Just kidding." That was, that was actually un- that was uncalled. Actually, that was it from was. It was from the Lord. <laughs> yes, because it was from the Scripture. Um, We're out of time. Something weird is happening when we get in here. It's like a time warp happens, and it's, it's, it's instantaneous. Time, it's not the time goes fast; it's time wraps can, around. Can I, before like we leave, make a shameless plug for you something? Can. Plug away, my friend. Yeah, in my book, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts, I have an entire chapter devoted to judging and weighing prophetic words. It's called "Who Said God Said," and I try in that chapter to give criteria uh, that I think are biblical and wise about how to evaluate these sorts of things. So if people are interested in it, it's I can't remember what chapter title it is. Who's the publisher? Um, uh, Gospel Light Regal. Gospel Light Regal and the It's called name, The Beginner's, Beginner's Guide to Guide. Spiritual Gifts. Um, it's a bad title. I don't like it, but it's a part of a series of they call mm. The Beginner's Guide 2, and there's about 15 topics. All right, good. very good. And we mentioned last time, I'll mention again, uh, the book uh, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views. Sam wrote... Uh, the view on the what, what did you call it in here charismatic no they called it third wave and even wayne grudem who edited the book talks in the introduction about why we don't like that label but we mm. didn't have any alternatives yeah. all right yeah. well you know sometimes uh, the labels uh, hopefully we're, we're helping people to 
to work through and pass labels, and it's so easy in these circumstances to get into labels. We're out of time, guys. We'll have to pick this up again next time, folks. Good for you, or we're glad that you joined us, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.